assessing President Barack Obama's cybersecurity legacy. That and other stories coming up on the ISMG Security Report. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro. I said that these cyber threats were one of the most serious economic national security challenges that we face as a nation, and I made confronting them a priority. That's President Barack Obama speaking at a 2015 Cybersecurity and Consumer Protection Summit at Stanford University. We're going to spend a few moments assessing Obama's cybersecurity legacy. Obama, more than any other president, brought cybersecurity to the forefront as a major White House priority during his eight years in office. From the get-go, in February 2009, a month after taking office, Obama ordered a review of the state of cybersecurity in the federal government that resulted in late May of that year publication of a plan on how to strengthen cybersecurity. In nearly every one of his State of the Union addresses, Obama emphasized the importance of cybersecurity to the government and American society. Working with Congress, Obama signed a new law that updated the 12-year-old Federal Information Security Management Act that governed federal IT security. Now, federal agencies employ a risk-based approach to secure their IT systems rather than employ the checkbox compliance approach of the past. During Obama's presidency, the government launched the Einstein Threat Prevention System and initiated a program to develop ways to build trust in cyberspace by improving the authentication process. These are just a few of Obama's cybersecurity initiatives. Perhaps the hallmark of Obama's cybersecurity achievements was the issuance of an executive order in 2013. It was aimed at improving critical infrastructure security and resilience. That order called on government and industry to share cyber threat information. It also directed the National Institute of Standards and Technology to collaborate with the private sector to develop the cybersecurity framework. That's the document critical infrastructure operators and other organizations could use to guide them in building secure IT systems. And they did. Here's Karen Evans. She served as George W. Bush's chief information officer and spoke at last year's ISMG Breach Prevention Summit. Executive order was really good because it set the tone from the top and was very clear to the agencies of what needed to happen. Despite all of Obama's cybersecurity accomplishments, is federal government IT more secure? The simple answer is no. Email systems in the White House and State Department were hacked, most likely by the Russians, most notably the Chinese breached computers at the Office of Personnel Management that exposed the personal information of more than 21 million individuals, many of whom held top secret clearances. And it was during Obama's watch that the biggest insider threat cases occurred, the pilfering of thousands of top secret documents by Edward Snowden and Chelsea Manning. Whether or not you see Snowden and Manning as traitors or whistleblowers, both episodes expose the government's failure to protect its secrets. Even with these significant setbacks, Obama leaves President Donald Trump with a foundation of initiatives to build upon. Though Trump properly seeks guidance from the private sector to identify the best approaches to secure IT, the federal government will continue to lead. Grappling with how government protects the American people from adverse events, while at the same time making sure the government itself is not abusing its capabilities, is hard. You know, the, the cyber world is, is sort of the wild, wild west. And to some degree, we're asked to be the sheriff. When something like Sony happens, people want to know what can government do about this. If information is being shared by terrorists in the cyber world, an attack happens, people want to know are there ways of stopping that from happening? By necessity, that means government 
has its own significant capabilities in the cyber world. But then people rightly ask, well, what safeguards do we have against government intruding on our own privacy? A Florida man is the latest to plead guilty to helping operate an unlicensed Bitcoin exchange. That conviction is part of a wide-ranging case that prosecutors say involves three men charged with running a massive pump-and-dump stock scheme that involved hacking into multiple financial institutions, including J.P. Morgan Chase. How did authorities track down these alleged schemers? To answer that question, we're joined by Data Breach Today Executive Editor Matt Schwartz. Hi, Matt. Hello, Eric. First off, tell us a bit about this case. This is a big, complex case that came to light in 2014. At the time, it was reported that a dozen financial institutions had been hacked into. Some initial reports, quoting unnamed sources with knowledge of the investigation, claimed that it had been an attack ordered by Russia in reprisals for Ukrainian sanctions imposed by the United States. So it was the Russians? No. As with all unsourced background comments, these appeared to be someone's guess or politically motivated observations. Then who? Interestingly, prosecutors have accused a couple of guys from Israel and a guy who was born in Maryland of having been the ringleaders of this operation. In addition, there are other individuals in Florida who have been indicted for running Coin.mx, which is an internet-based Bitcoin exchange, the prosecutors say laundered some of the money obtained by the ringleaders through their hack attacks. What were these hack attacks? Prosecutors have charged the two Israelis who've been extradited, as well as the Maryland man who gave himself up at JFK Airport after flying back from Moscow last month. They've been charged with hacking into the various banks in order to steal more than 100 million customers' personal details. As alleged, they used the stolen information to email people to inflate the price of penny stocks that they had bought, at which point the alleged criminals allegedly sold their stocks, thus profiting from the difference. How did the Bitcoin exchange tie into all this? Prosecutors have also charged one of the Israelis with being the owner of Coin.mx. But there's somebody else that they have arrested who has been charged with operating it. Coin.mx is interesting. According to prosecutors, it processed more than $10 million in Bitcoin transactions without reporting them to authorities. Running a Bitcoin exchange isn't illegal, but failing to notify the authorities about those transactions, as well as to have internal processes in place to flag any suspicious transactions, is illegal. And that's what a bunch of these people who've been arrested have been accused of, is violating federal anti-money laundering statutes. Do we see any end in sight with cryptocurrencies being used for fraud? Without a doubt, cryptocurrencies offer the potential for some degree of anonymity. Obviously, there's legitimate uses, but it's also a natural fit for people who want to try to obscure their money trail. What is interesting about this case is the people accused of running the Bitcoin exchange were also accused of having installed people onto the board of directors of a credit union and then using that credit union to transfer Bitcoins into dollars. Here you see a point where virtual currency gets turned into dollars. This was the crux of part of the government's investigation. That $10 million in bitcoins got turned into dollars. It should have been flagged. It wasn't being flagged, which suggests fraudulent activity. This appears to have come to light in part because the credit union got investigated by its regulators, who ultimately liquidated the credit union. Cashing out bitcoin continues to be a challenge. This seems to be where a lot of criminals get caught when they try to take the proceeds, for example, from ransomware attacks that get paid in bitcoins. 
Eventually, of course, they want to turn that into cash. Unless they can find a way to do that, that investigators can't somehow trace, then it's very possible that they're going to be getting a call from law enforcement. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Eric. You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news. Facebook is dismissing a charge that its WhatsApp cross-platform instant messaging application contains a backdoor that can be used to unlock encrypted messages. How should users assess the risk in using messaging apps? ISMG Security and Technology Editor Jeremy Kirk provides an answer. The mere suggestion that a software application contains a backdoor or a secret way to access data sends shivers down companies' spines. Users are particularly hypersensitive to backdoors in an era where governments seek new ways to defeat encryption. Facebook's WhatsApp is the latest to come under fire. A security researcher claimed that the company failed to fix a weakness that could allow an attacker to decrypt some WhatsApp messages with a little warning. WhatsApp uses end-to-end encryption, which means that only senders and recipients can read messages. Getting that to work on mobile devices requires difficult design choices around encryption keys. The researcher claimed that WhatsApp puts users at risk by allowing some messages to be sent after the recipient had changed their keys. Other messaging applications, such as the super secure signal, warn senders before sending messages in that scenario. The fear is that someone other than the intended recipient could be receiving the messages. Ideally, if one user changes their keys, both users should verify each other's keys before communicating again, which is a way to be alerted to a man-in-the-middle attack. WhatsApp dismissed the claim of a backdoor. It received support from Moxie Marlinspike, the renowned cryptographer who designed the protocol used by both WhatsApp and Signal. He says given the application's large user base, the design choice was best. The risk for most users is slight, and a successful attack would be highly complicated. Facebook was rightly commended last year for implementing world-class cryptography in WhatsApp. It moved hundreds of millions of users onto a much more secure and private way to communicate. But different users have different security requirements. While most people probably aren't bothered by a niche risk such as this, others may need to be as secure as absolutely possible. That's why it's important to look at the details of how a service implements cryptography before choosing a platform. The issue here is far from a backdoor, but it may help people to better select just how much risk they want to tolerate. For activists working from within oppressive regimes in particular, just one mistake or inadvertent use of compromised software can lead to their identities being unmasked. For anyone who fears they may be so targeted, they may want to take every possible precaution, especially when it comes to their choice of messaging technology. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Jeremy Kirk. That's the ISMG Security Report. Our theme is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Eric Chabro. Catch you next time.